Hello and welcome to In the Thick of It, our weekly podcast with Colin Lambert, Managing Editor of Profit and Loss, and myself, Galen Stops. Uh, Colin, to kick us off this week, I wanted to start off talking about an interview that you did with uh, Guy Bell, who is the Reserve Bank of Australia Deputy Governor, and he's in charge of the Global FX Committee now. Um, yep. So talk me through, he, you ranged on a number of different issues to do with the code there. What was, what was kind of your big takeaway from that conversation? Um, I think probably I would say that there's a lot of folks on the three-year review that's coming up um, next year. They're going to be taking feedback on that. My sense, and I think a lot of people's sense in the industry, have been that over the last couple of years, the project has kind of stalled. We had that really good rush to the final version of the code. Then we had that rush of like people signing the statement of adherence in the first year. And since then, apart from you know, we did we did the piece on the last week, but since then, not a lot seems to have happened. I, I don't say that in a critical manner. I think it's just a question of it's human nature for people to want things to happen quickly and for things to maintain momentum. And these things just take time. My sense is that the cover and deal disclosures work streams are going to be a struggle still for another couple of years because of anonymous trading. We didn't go into it a great deal in the in the interview um, because I think my yeah you know, again my sense is that guy was very much like you know that's an area they want to explore and they'll be happy to talk more about it when they've got a real good feel for what people are saying around the table. Um, so I think anonymous trading will be one thing and that cuts across the cover and deal and the disclosures. And let's face it, how can you actually know someone's obeying a disclosure if you're if they're anonymous? You know, it's, it's always going to be a problem, isn't it? Um, and I guess the other thing was that um, I sense a bit more confidence in the buy side outreach going forward. And that could be the result of, A, the efforts of the last year finally coming to fruition. Um, it will be a more positive and proactive approach to the buy side. As in, look, you know, you can show you're a good market citizen here. To me, the critical, I think one of the critical comments Guy made was, um, if you think about your execution in any way, then you're then you are an FX market participant. You know, if you if you have a spreadsheet that spits out a number and you phone someone up and do the trade, that's fine. It's not necessarily you're not necessarily in scope of it. But if you're thinking about how you execute at any moment, that makes you a market participant. So I sense the buy side outreach will be going, um, begun probably a little bit more positively and proactively this year. I think the other thing that's really helping um, is something we touched on as well is the FCA's recognition of the code because that's. So I want to talk to. Yeah. I want to talk to you about this because I, I had a conversation. I was talking to someone this week um, about it was a, a wide-ranging conversation, and the code came up, and they were kind of praising the code and saying, you know, oh, I think it's you know it's great that the uh, the UK's Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA, has recognised the code. I think that's you know going to help give it teeth, and that's a, an important step. Uh, so I asked, what well, with the FCA recognising it, um, are we are we slowly edging towards regulation here? Um, and their response was no comment. Um, mm. So, so your view? I mean, firstly, what does what does recognising the code mean? Um, and secondly, are we are we edging towards very slightly and slowly regulation here? It, it, is recognising it the first step on the way to the FCA adopting it? Or implementing it? I will answer your questions in reverse order. No, this is not a step on the road to regulation. 
Um, I think what we're actually seeing in this um, is a very, very good use case for the code. So what the FCA, have, what recognising it means, the same happened in Australia last year with ASIC, the regulator down here. And what it basically, what recognition means is that when the FCA or ASIC or any other regulator that might recognise the code goes into an institution to check up on what their business, you know, how their business is running, you know, do a, an audit, compliance check, whatever it is. When it comes to FX, their guidelines will be the FX Global Code. So you could argue it's quasi-regulation because if the regulator finds that someone's in breach of the FX Global Code, then they are going to um, take action. But um, the Global Code is not going to be a legal document. It will They will have to build their own case against the institution and not adhering to the Global Code will be their, I guess one way of explaining it will be that will be their expert witness. Yeah, there's a okay. huge industry out there at the moment of expert witnesses, thanks to all the court cases we've had. Um, but the code will become the expert witness, so to speak, for the regulators as they check on the business. So I don't think it's a step on the road to regulation. Um, having said that, if I'm on the buy side in the UK, my regulator is the FCA. And if the FCA is recognising the FX Global Code and saying they're going to be paying attention to how firms adhere to it, then as an asset manager in particular, or a hedge fund, I would say, I think I might want to be checking myself up on the code and whether I do adhere to it or not, and probably signing a statement of commitment. So here's another question for you. Um, yep. In the, the interview, you, you asked Gary DeBell um, if the in terms of the outreach to the buy side, um, you know, there hasn't been this, this kind of adoption that was perhaps hoped for. Um, yeah. the, the message doesn't seem to have hit home. And you ask, kind of, does it need to change? Um, and and DeBell admits, you know, that says, I'm quoting here, we've been delivering the message, but as you say, it hasn't resonated. Yet in the same sentence, he says that the message doesn't need to change. Do you mm. agree with that assessment? I don't think the message needs to change. I think it's the delivery that needs to change. Um, I think, you know, and, and I think, you know, the, again, the FCA thing can really help because they can turn around and say, okay, look, you know, your regulators might be looking at this as well. Do you, do you want to do that? So I think the message is generally okay. You know, what is the, why should a buy-side firm adopt the global code? In reality, it comes down to those principles around execution. And frankly, I think everything about the global code comes down to the execution. We've solved the information sharing problem, largely. Although I found it interesting that guy, as an aside, guy did turn around and say, yeah, there are people that may not agree with that, that maybe think we haven't actually solved that problem, um, which is a little bit cryptic. Um, but I think, generally speaking, we've solved the information sharing. The post-trade didn't need changing. That was just there to say, look, this is what we do, and this is what you should be doing. The execution piece is a really interesting one. And so, you know, how does that affect the buy side? Well, what do they do in the FX market? They execute their volumes. So therefore, it should be applying to them. And I think, I kind of think we've let them off with an easy ride. You know, this, is, this is going really well. So I've upset the non-bank market makers three weeks ago, upset the banks last week. Now I'm going to upset the, um, the buy side. Because, yeah, you're on the, you should be adhering to the global code because you're executing and you've been given a free ride 
by the banks who are scared of their own shadow and they're very scared to turn around to their customers and say, well, actually, I'm not really happy with you not being and uh, not having a statement of commitment. That's just giving them an easy ride. It's giving them an easy way out. And I think that will probably change over the course of the next year. So I think the message will be the same, but the approach will be more, I, I would use the word aggressive. But the, the problem still comes down to it. It's like just as you know, turkeys don't vote for Christmas, are the banks going to really turn around and say to their customers, come on, guys, this is getting silly now? Because you know, there are plenty of clients out there still abusing the market, and they are in breach of the global code because they're, they're not actually being honest and transparent when they're executing. And it's the, this thing goes back 50 years, and it's you know, the customer asks 10 banks in 50, and they tell them, I'm only asking you, and then hit all 10 of them. All of a sudden, 500 is the market, and you know, 10 dealers are stuffed. That's bad behavior. So, yeah, I think yeah, in terms of the message, I don't think the message does need to change because what is bad behavior is bad behavior. But what, they've got to, what we've got to do is be more aggressive with the buy side in saying, no, hang on a second, you have a responsibility here. You know, this goes back to the whole thing. They've had free liquidity. They're getting free execution around benchmarks. We need to rein that in. It's going to be a brave bank that does it, so maybe it needs a good exchange committee. As I was say, says a man who doesn't have these people as customers. No, exactly. No, I, but I can tell you one thing. Like, even back in the day, as, as a as a dealer, we used to hate certain customers because we knew they were lying to us. You, know, you don't have a situation where a customer asks you for a price in a in a strange amount or in a fairly large amount, says only you, and literally the thing's seventy points lower ten seconds later. And back then, dealers could talk to each other because we weren't sharing information because there was no real-time information sharing. But you'd meet each other maybe over lunch or over, you know, in the evening, or you'd even see him on the way home in the train. And you'd just chat about how was your day. Oh, my day was pretty, was pretty good until um, a hedge fund came along and slammed me in 50. Oh, it wasn't around 2 o'clock, was it, because I got the same guy. These things would get found out. So, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's not fair on liquidity providers. And I know they haven't covered themselves in glory over the years, don't get me wrong, um, but this is a thing to say. The global code is there for everybody. And at the moment, I think the buy side is abrogating its responsibility to the, to the FX market. And, that's what, and I think that will, be, that will be what has to change. If it doesn't, the I, FX global code will be a failure. So I was going to ask you, I mean, how do you... How do you think history will kind of judge the code just because – the reason I ask is because I've been talking to a number of people for the next edition of, of Profit and Loss magazine, which kind of talking to some, some uh, senior figures in the industry, and I mean senior by stature, not necessarily yeah. age. So I've had to reassure a few people this week. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, so we're kind of doing a, a look back but also a look forward. And I've kind of been talking to people, you know, what are the – the big pivotal changes you've seen in the industry over the past 20 years. And, you know, when I've brought up the code and I've said to people, you know, in, in 5, 10, 15 years' time when we, you know, had this similar conversation, uh, are people going to look back at the code as a kind of a significant change or, or turning point or even just kind of a momentous uh, occasion in the FX industry? And unanimously people have said no. Yep. Um, well, there's someone else for me to disagree with. I think he will. I, I honestly think he will. And if for, for no other reason than from the end of May 2017, I think it was whenever the full code was released, 
Um, from that day on, nobody in FX had the excuse of saying, I didn't know. Because a lot of people, if you look at the chat room stuff that went on and sharing information, let's not kid ourselves. You know, so these people were found not guilty, and that's fine. I'm happy with that. I don't think it's a, anything that people should stand on trial for. However, I do think it's a disciplinary issue. You're sharing information with a rival institution. I cannot see anything good in that. I, I mean, could you tell me one way that would actually be, you know, okay? I can't think of one. Well, well, Colin, we've actually had this conversation before. Remember when we had the opinion piece from Rohan Ramchandani yeah. talking about how he didn't view them as, as um, competitors. They were counterparts, and it's an OTC yep. market. And to, yep. to trade with them, OTC, I have to say what I want to be able to trade, and, and that's why the conversation Yeah, no, hang on. Happened. No, no. Yeah, no, that's, that, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about the, the stuff that went on around the fix. I'm talking about the stuff that was information sharing around. There's been been so many scandals, it's hard to keep up. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm talking about stuff where they're sharing information about, oh, this code name is doing this. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Or I've got to go and I've got to go and do this. I mean, it's inappropriate sharing of information because, yeah, okay, I get they're trying to they're trying to get someone to help them out, but you're still giving information out from the institution that shouldn't go outside the institution. I, I so find it a the, paradox that the one institution, you know, the one deal, the big deal that didn't go outside the institution, which was the Ken Energy one, is the one where someone's gone to jail for. That, that to me yeah. is, is nonsensical. So to my but, mind, from but these guys, sorry, just to finish off, these guys got away with it by saying, no, no, we didn't know there was anything wrong in it because their management were condoning it. The global code has put a stop to that and has said from that day on, the excuse I didn't know will no longer stand. So that, just by that alone, I think it has to be a fairly significant landmark. So the people that, that I've been speaking to, the, the argument from them has generally been that uh, this was that basically everyone, that, well, not everyone, obviously, but the vast majority yeah. of people in the market were behaving as they should be, and basically adhering yeah. to what the code says, it Absolutely. was just a few a few bad apples, and therefore yeah. not much has changed pre-code or post-code in their opinion. I, I would still go back to my point that we've had traders get away, you know, win unfair dismissal tribunals, and I honestly believe they should have won them because they, they were treated abominably by their banks, and they were told what to do by their management. If there's any culpability in this whole chat room thing, it's with the senior management of the FX businesses and the senior management of the banks or the markets businesses at that time. But they knew in their heart of hearts that it is not the right thing to do to turn around and say, oh, you know, I've got a customer doing this, or I've got stop losses here. That's not the way it's done. They knew that, but they got away with it because there was no globally recognized document. The ACI's model code was there and it said it was wrong, but everyone chose to ignore that. They can now, they now cannot turn around and say, oh, no, no, I didn't know that was wrong. So, yeah, I get their point about, you know, the bad apples will still be the bad apples. But then to roll back to the FCA thing, if the bad apple is behaving and the FCA catches them, the global code will then be shown to have some teeth because a regulator's going to go like, you're, you're a bad actor, we're going to root you out, and this is the basis of evidence we're going to use. So I, 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 I tend not to agree with those that are gloomy about its impact. Um, I, 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 just, just to say, though, 
the jury's still out. We've got to get the buy side on board. Um, okay, moving on from the code, another story this week that was kind of significant um, was the the volumes reports from central banks. Yeah. Um, you wrote an article saying that, well, questioning, um, should single dealers be concerned? Should they, Colin? Um, yes. And actually, before I say that, can I actually, for the Global Foreign Exchange Committee, you have a second day of all your meetings when you're talking about you know issues around the world. For the love of God, people, please, would you just get every FX committee to put out the same data in the same fashion? Yeah, it's really annoying. I agree. Oh, does my head in. And Singapore, what are you doing? You're the third biggest centre in the world, and literally that report, I mean, I think you know, my nan could have written it. Um, anyway, so back to your question. Yeah, I, I think the interesting thing was for me was um, single dealer platforms in the Europe. This is UK and US only because they're the only FXCs that actually break out the data. Um, but obviously, we're talking about 55 to 60% of the global foreign exchange market, so it's significant. Um, single dealer platform you, volumes really dropped heavily. Now, this could be an anomaly. If you remember previously, we said about, um, I think it would have been six months ago when the report came out, and I was mystified by the fact that voice brokers were suddenly doing 100 yards a day a spot. Yeah. Well, funnily enough, in the last report, they've gone back down to their 30 yards a day. So I think okay. what it was was someone was misreporting. I think someone was misreporting. Okay. Um, it, could, you know, it could be, well, that platform's owned by a broker, so therefore that's broker volumes. Um, I don't know. The same thing could be happening with single dealers because what was interesting to me was like volumes between reporting dealers went up. This wasn't actually customer business driving the growth. Um, but if you've invested a lot of money in single dealer platform, you're suddenly seeing 5% of volume going through it. Maybe they should be concerned. I mean, I think inevitably in low volume, sorry, low volatility environments, inevitably you're going to get more people going to the multi-dealer venues and the broken systems because they think they can squeeze an extra half a pip. And if the market's not moving, then they're not concerned about losing two or three pips on it, are they? So I think that's maybe a consequence of low volatility. But then another paradox in these reports is everyone's been telling you and I that April was a horrible month. Yeah. And yet you look at it and the numbers are higher. And I have to say this My through gritted teeth. Right. I know, I know gritted <laughs> teeth. But I'm, I was looking at that going, well, I reckon the BIS number could be anything any, anywhere towards 5.8 yards. Oh, sorry, trillion. Which is, even even I'm going to have to admit, that's, that's a reasonable increase from 5.1. Yeah. So your prediction may be right on that one. But um, So, yeah, I mean, so numbers gone up. It was all, it was all non-spot. The UK did see an increase in spot. So did Singapore. The others didn't. Um, but the growth was all in NDFs, swaps, and interestingly, options. I've, I wrote does, my column that... on the plane coming up to uh, Malaysia today, and it was about the FX options piece. Going like, well, why are FX option volumes going up when volatility is so low? There's some interesting, there's some interesting questions come from that data. As to your question on the single dealer platforms, I'm not sure they do need to be that worried because I think the the flow that's going through those platforms is actually pretty high value. Okay. There's good dollars. Uh, There's good dollars per million on that, as opposed to in competition on a multi-dealer platform. Um, another thing, uh, point of concern that I've been hearing from people in the industry, uh, 
particularly in the last week, is some of the fallout from uh, City's decision to, to cut non-bank, some of the non-bank market makers from its FXPB business. Have you been hearing chatter around this? Um, I think it's, oh yeah, there's been some interesting chatter around it, but mainly I think it's a it's a temporal thing. Everyone's much like the buy-side adoption of the global code. Everyone's going, like, well, why hasn't it happened yet? Um, I still have my doubts that this is actually going to end up uh, that positively because, as I think I said in the podcast when we first spoke about it, when the story was broken, um, I think Cities actually kind of spooked the other PBs as well with A, with that paper that you reported on and spoke to them about back in March, but B, with their decision to get rid of the you know, four, four or five big market makers um, because I think that's kind of spooked the market. It's going to like, it's not something they do easily. And I think they're worried about the cost. So I think Mike and what I'm here, what I'm being told is pretty much what I was being told two months ago or a month ago, whenever it was, um, that actually the other prime brokers are just still, you know, looking at their strategy. Some, I mean, some are going in open arms. Don't get me wrong. But most of them are so looking I... at their strategy. I mean, I've been hearing that this was a decision that was taken, not maybe not lightly, but um, rather suddenly. Um, yeah. I've, I mean, there's, there's been a, a lot of rumours. I heard, I heard one rumour about uh, a senior, and I should stress this is just a rumour about a senior figure um, at the bank reading um, an article on aeroplane flight about uh, the risks associated with uh, non-bank market makers HFTs, and, and two weeks later they were all uh, told to leave. Um, mm. That's what I had. But uh, so I've spoken to a few people in the market this week. Um, anecdotally, I'm hearing that the, the people just say that a lot of the, the non-bank uh, LPs are just a bit distracted right now with sorting everything because, you know, even though they have other PBs in place um, and they may be signing up with others, it's just a lot of paperwork and it's time consuming. So I'm kind of just anecdotally yeah. hearing attention has been has been diverted. I spoke to one person on the e-trading side who said that they've noticed um, a slight change in top of book liquidity, but they they kind of stressed that it's too early to say if it's related to this or if it's just you know one of those things. Sometimes liquidity fluctuates, um, so that that is perhaps something to keep an eye on. I also spoke to one person who said that. Um, Anecdotally, they're hearing that some of the backlogs at these FXPBs, just because there is so much legal and paperwork that comes with the onboarding, yeah. um, you know, they were saying that they've heard that some of them have back. They've actually told the uh, complaint that the FXPB salespeople are doing too good a job because they've got a, a six to nine to nine month backlog, um, and then, you know they're having conversations about, okay, we need to sit down and actually really figure out which of these are a priority to get on board and, and which are going to kind of get pushed to the back. Yeah, the thing is, though, Galen, if you want a definition of leaning on an open door, it's FXPB sales at the moment, isn't it? Because there well, are yeah. firms out there looking for a PB. You know, if your salespeople aren't bringing it in at the moment, then I think you need to ask them what they're doing. You, your onboarding thing is a very good point because actually, I spoke. So I was speaking to someone um, senior um, in stature, not in age, <laughs> to use your expression, <laughs> um, this week, and. Um, as I say, for our, for our features for the next magazine. And there, the, th the thing they thought had gone nowhere in foreign exchange was the onboarding process. It's still as long, end-to-end, -end, it's still as long and as onerous as it was 15, 20 years ago. 
and that to them was why there was a barrier to entry to, to new entrants, why the, the same group of banks typically stay at the top of the tree because they did that work and took that pain you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, yeah. And I think that kind of rolls into your point. And that's just onboarding to a, a single dealer platform. Onboarding to a PB is going to be a lot, lot more complex than that. So, yeah. Um, I mean, whether whether it was a sudden decision from City, I mean, I kind of feel it was bubbling up for a little while ever since the the problem they had with um, the Hong Kong hedge fund. And frankly, I think it could have been bubbling up even longer than that. This could go back to yeah. SMB day because you know, obviously they were they were struggling on SMB day as everyone was. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was the time when people first started saying, so, sorry, why why are we in this business so heavily? And the tech spend that we've mentioned before is just going up and up. We go into the banks every February, and every year we're told how much money they're spending to, main, to maintain their PB businesses. Um, one question I'd ask you, actually. So you're talking about you know people reading about the risks. And to stress again, it was just a rumor. That was one of the things behind it. But we do hear this a lot. You and I both hear this a lot around, um, oh, yeah, you know, the, 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 the threat of HFTs and non-bank market makers doing so many trades. How many of these HFTs have had a rogue algo? I mean, well, the obvious one there is Knight Capital. Were they a high-frequency trader? I would put them more down as a broker-dealer. I mean, it's, it's a moot point, I guess. I, 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 think, but, I, think, I, mean, I think they were engaged in – I mean, the whole reason why they lost – so much money yeah. so quickly was because they were engaged in okay whether you're going to split hairs on whether it's HFT or not yeah um, they were they were engaged in some pretty fast trading yeah fair enough but if I ask that question with an FX angle okay I think I think we're struggling aren't we well so, so, so this is this is the thing like I agree with your point I do agree that I think rather than being a, a knee jerk thing because someone read something somewhere. Um, I, yeah. I suspect this is, has been bubbling up for some time. That being said, I've spoken and we brought this up, you know, in the article we wrote, we brought it up, um, I think in the last podcast, I, I spoke to a number of people who are quite mystified by, if you look at where the blow ups have happened, it's not been yeah. in HFTs trading, you know, almost exclusively no. spot in kind of, you know, small sizes, lots of tickets. Um, you know, people have been slightly mystified saying, you know, as long as you have the right, you know, they all have a, a different risk profile, but as long as you have the right risk controls in place, you know, that's not where the blow up's going to happen. Those guys stay pretty flat when they trade. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I actually, I mean, I think it was, a, I think it was a piece you wrote on this. You might have been quoting somebody and it said like, you know, the head or it's something I said, I can't remember, but you know, the, um, the non-bank market makers are paying the price of hedge fund incompetence to paraphrase it. And there's something in there. But I still come back to the same problem. I think the technology required to risk manage a high volume of trades, um, I think probably became uneconomic for City. And I still think that the other PBs will look at it. And unless their economics are different in terms of what they're charging, I think they will find the same thing as well. So, I mean, you could get your three or four of these firms, just get you know, one, one PB says, okay, I'll take that one, and I won't take any of the others. That's maybe the way around it. Maybe the problem was City had everyone, as we've discussed before. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I think the other PBs will find the same thing. It, it comes down to cost of technology, as everything does in this world. Um, 
you know, people tell us technology is getting cheaper, but I'm not, sh- you know, I'm not totally convinced it is when you actually look at how much technology you need. It's the same as data. Data, Yes, data is cheaper, but if you need 20 times more, your data cost is more, isn't it? So yeah. it was interesting because on, on the plane up tonight, I was um, reading an, an academic paper. Actually, I read four. I, won't, I, I will not thrill you with all four of them. But this one was on HFTs, and um, one of them was talking about um, arbitrage opportunities in FX, spot FX, triangulation opportunities, and they're saying, oh, it works for 90 minutes a day, which bemused me, you know, how they can work that one out. But the one that really interested me was a paper by some people um, who did a working paper for the ECB. Now, they stress yeah. this does not reflect the views of the ECB, blah, blah, blah. But in that, it basically said that a market quality is diminished the minute you get more than one HFT in it. Basically, it says if there's one HFT in there, then that's fine. It adds to adds to market efficiency, does a really good job. But the minute you get more than one, market quality starts diminishing. Now, I mean, I I haven't gone through the full paper because it was bizarrely enough. This is the fourth paper I read, which is a bit of a shame because I would like to go into it in more detail. But that to me was interesting. There was one line in it that said basically we should work towards a market structure where we have. Um, an environment in which one uh, one high frequency trading firm can operate and no others. Wow, that seems like an <laughs> unlikely scenario. I would say it's a very unlikely scenario, given that most banks now are trading like HFTs <laughs> in their own way. Um, but I think it could highlights the problem though that people have with a multitude of these firms, and maybe that's what City was also thinking as well. Yeah, maybe they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, and they've gone, look, we're just going to cull everyone here. But, yeah, you kind of feel that the problem is there's just too, there were too many of them in one place. So I don't know, we'll see. So that will actually do us for this week, I think. There's our 30 minutes is up. We'd like to thank you all for listening once again. We'll be back next week, bright and breezy. Um, until then, have a very good week. <laughs>